What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the Wee Sports Chronicles podcast. We got a great episode for you today. Next up is Michael Grange. He is a multi-platform sports journalist for Rogers Sportsnet covering the NBA and the Toronto Raptors. In this episode, I chat with Michael about where the Toronto Raptors are going to play next season, the various considerations that go into that in terms of making a decision. The NBA starting on December 22nd and the viability and the various obstacles that the NBA has to overcome trying to play basketball amidst the pandemic. We also touch a little bit on free agency and and whether the Raptors are in play to keep Fred Van Vliet. And then we dive deeper into Michael's career path and the various great stops along the way, including the Globe and Mail, Sportsnet, and covering the Toronto Raptors, winning an NBA championship, in which Michael won Sports Writer of the Year for Sports Media Canada's awards. The We Sports Chronicles podcast is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. Now let's get to episode 83 with Michael Grange on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. All right, as I said off the top, I am pleased to be joined by Michael Grange. Michael is a multi-platform sports journalist working for Roger Sportsnet covering the Toronto Raptors and the NBA. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. How are you? I'm, I'm good and thanks for having me on, Lucas. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure, and we'll get into your career in just a bit. But, uh, you know, big news, of course, with the NBA starting officially on, on December 22nd. Not much time between the end of the 2020 season to, to then the start of the new season. I'm just curious, I mean, what your thoughts are. I mean, it's going to be, you know, for I guess for, for you and for the fans, it'll be good to have basketball back, but certainly. A lot of question marks as as the COVID nineteen pandemic rages on. Yeah, really, it's um, you know the NBA, of course, got full marks for how they've dealt with everything as it relates to pandemic. Right from uh, at the very very beginning when they they uh, were the first league to shut down, and I think really sent a signal across all of North America with the that action, and then of course coming back to play in Orlando, and you know just kind of crossing every T and dotting every I and, and really demonstrating uh, how effective uh, proper quarantine could be and, and all the other things that we've been told over and over again um, as it relates to keeping people safe. And now maybe, you know, the challenges only get bigger because um, unfortunately, but maybe predictably, uh, case counts are um, setting records, it seems like, everywhere. Right, like certainly here in Ontario and Toronto are the hotspots, and and uh, across the U.S. Uh, everywhere you look, and um, you know, so now the NBA is trying to get back to work, but without a bubble, and with you know 29 teams across the U.S. and it looks like the Raptors are going to join them in the U.S. this year. So that's 30 teams and 30 different markets, uh, traveling parties flying all over the U.S. and 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 you know, asking a lot of young men. Um, to behave in a way that's really, you know, really requires them to kind of be extraordinarily disciplined as we all have to be um, in order to avoid, um, you know, infecting others, 
bringing the team down, you know, halting the league, just postponing games. I mean, the repercussions beyond merely health, of course, are uh, are pretty significant. So it's going to be a fascinating, fascinating uh, um, season, uh, regardless of what happens on the floor almost. Well, you just mentioned the difficulties, and we've seen in other sports like Major League Baseball, the NFL, college football try to, to try to start it, you know, in a pandemic and with postponements occurring and players testing positive, and even trying to get fans back in in stadiums. It pre- presents a real, you know, plethora of challenges. And you mentioned the Toronto Raptors likely to play in the United States, and, and you recently did some really excellent reporting about potentially the Raptors playing in Tampa next year. So it, so it's really interesting, Michael. Maybe just, if you can, walk the listeners through, like, what needs to happen for the Raptors to get approval to play anywhere? Like, is, I guess it's with city officials and then the Raptors' approval process. So maybe walk us through that and why Tampa's sort of, you know, becoming a likely spot for them this next season. Well, really, it comes down to the federal government more than, mm. than any other level of government. Of course, the city of Toronto, municipality, you know, the public health people there have to kind of sign off on whatever plan the Raptors have in place in the province as well. Uh, but, and, you know, and my understanding is when the Blue Jays went through this this past summer, um, the city was pretty good with it. The province was good with it, but it was just at the federal level, um, they just couldn't. Uh, get any traction there and of course the issue um is is you have your team plus support staff so let's say 30 people uh flying back and forth across the border uh once or twice a week potentially and of course another party of, of 30 or so coming in from the u.s which we know now is is kind of on fire mm-hmm. with covid unfortunately right now and so um all the quarantine regulations and the restrictions that apply to everybody else um, would have to be waived for not only the Raptors, but for teams coming in to play the Raptors. And, you know, again, I think politically the city, I think if you're a city official, you can probably sell that to the, you know, you're helping out the local team that's done so much for the city. And and even provincially, there might be, um, you know, some recognition there and keep in mind, MLSC and the Raptors have been wonderful corporate citizens through this whole thing. So, um, you know, so they get a lot of, you know, goodwill, I think that way, deservedly so. But at the federal level, there's nothing to gain, right? Mm-hmm. It's not gonna, it's not gonna get Justin Trudeau votes. It's not gonna get a local MP votes. And, you know, in the end, they're the ones really footing the bill for all the um, issues that can arise during an outbreak. So. Um, you know, that's where the, the, the challenge is going to come. They've got to sign off on a border plan. And if they don't, and if they don't do it, um, you know, we're talking on, uh, you know, if they don't do it literally about within 24 hours of this conversation, then uh, then they can't be doing it in Toronto. And, and, and that's for the entire season then. So then, so in that case... What's then sort of the deadline to then decide on then a city then in the United States? Uh, pretty soon after that, right? Because, uh, you know, with the December 22 start, December 1 is projected as training camp. And that's only uh, 18 days, 17 <laughs> days from now. Something yeah. Like that. And so, 
um, you know, you've got to give notice to your players, to your staff. You've got to, they've got to find accommodations. They've got to arrange travel. They've got to decide if you have kids, are you going to keep your kids in the home market and, and just daddy's going to go away? Are you going to bring your kids down there? And I, and I think that's one thing that was communicated to me and I wrote about is, is there's not going to be a situation where everybody kind of uh, goes through hoops uh, to get them in Toronto for, for training camp if they aren't going to get a guarantee that they're going to be there for the entire season. And that's another issue. That's hard for the government of Canada, for example, to guarantee something that far into the future, given how fluid everything is. So um, I would say, you know, we're going to have to find out real soon. And, you know, if it's not going to be in Toronto for training camp, it's not going to be Toronto for the season, at least certainly the first chunk of the season. And then uh, wherever they end up going for training camp will be likely where they, they end up camping out for uh for what could be you know six months or so and my understanding is the city of tampa has kind of emerged as the leader among there's a number of uh options that have been kind of percolating out there and um you know there's good reason for that and i'm assuming then as well michael like the whole concept of Zoom press conferences and, and, and Zoom post-game scrums, which have become such a fixture in 2020. I, I mean, I'm curious what that's been like for you. I mean, I know you've, you know, had many years in the business before, you know, this this sort of strange time, but I guess it's just another adjustment that journalists have to make in, in, in an ever-evolving uh, media industry and climate. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. And, and I'd say... I've been lucky. Um, I think the NBA generally, and, and especially the media relations people that do work for the Raptors and, and the Raptors themselves, you know, Nick Nurse, uh, you know, multiple players have been, were really, really good, really, really accommodating. And so you felt like you could still more or less do your job. Um, in some ways it was better. <laughs> um, you know, if you've ever seen a post-game press conference, everyone has it let alone if you've actually been one in one, they're no good for anyone. No. Um, you know, the, the number of people who are credentialed has kind of grown, it seems, every year. And so you're in this room. It, the guys have just finished playing. It's a small room. They're kind of you're surrounding them. It's uncomfortable for me sticking microphones in there, <laughs> and it's uncomfortable for them being surrounded. Um, and so really almost everyone just wants to get it done as quickly as they possibly can. <laughs> um, the players, especially, and I don't blame them. Uh, so what was, I would say better, uh, with the zoom press conference was, um, you know, it was very orderly and you were allowed follow-up questions. The players, I think were at ease. It was very comfortable, right? Like they weren't kind of being poked and prodded and they had a little bit more control. And so I actually found the content we got out of a lot of those to be quite good. Mm. Um, what was missing is when, you know, you're around a team, when you travel with a team, when you go to practices every day, when you go to a practice on a Saturday, when everybody's not there and there's only a handful of people, uh, media people there, and you have an opportunity to have casual conversations with an assistant coach, with a head coach after the camera's off with a player sometimes. And, you know, similarly on the road, some of those opportunities arise as well. And that's really where you get quality content mm. above and beyond, right? So you might be working on a feature on somebody and, and it can be as simple as, you know what, uh, you know, Fred, I know we did this interview a couple of weeks ago, but I, I, I talked to your high school teacher or coach and he told me this, can I just get a 
you know, and then literally it can be three minutes um, as he's walking off the floor after practice. But that that can be the the anecdote that kind of really elevates a, a feature, for example. And uh, so it, it's it's about relationship building and and presence and and trying to make things as casual as possible. So that's obviously to me is the biggest uh, thing we're missing as journalists. If you're a good journalist, um, and uh, you know how do you kind of replace that? I, I'm not sure at the moment, but I I would say that. Um, you know, there's been some good and, and definitely some bad, but it's, uh, you know, I, I respect and applaud the people who are trying to keep the ball rolling and, uh, you know, it's everyone's doing the best they can. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a really good point about those post-game press conferences, like, you know, the complete opposite of social distancing when it was normal times. Yeah. Everyone I, just... I, don't know if we'll, I honestly don't know if we'll ever have them again. Really, really interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even post-vaccine and all that kind of stuff, like, let's fingers crossed. Yeah. I just think that the, the awareness that this whole experience has created for everybody, that, that why uh, you would invite, um, you know, even from a franchise league point of view, like, you've got LeBron James, who's, every time he steps on the floor, creates revenue for everyone involved. Well, why would you kind of expose him to 15 or 20 or 30 random strangers mm-hmm. when, you know, and when he walks off and gets the flu and he can't play for a week right so mm-hmm. um you know so i think a lot of those things are going to change like you know i think we're all going to be a lot more conscious i've no one's more guilty than me <laughs> of going to work when i feel sick yeah um you know I'm, i kind of feel bad if i don't go to work and you know and and uh apologize apologies to all the people holds <laughs> to over the years i feel badly now but uh you know but anyway so so I think I think that particular element of uh, of player interaction is probably done, and, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I I, yeah. I I think really they evolved into something where you're basically hoping for someone to lose their marbles yeah. in the scrum and, and make it interesting, right? And and go viral. And that's not the way I work. That's mm-hmm. not the way I want to work. Um, and uh, you know, but but it's it's so I think. I, I won't be sad to see them go. A natural follow-up question to that, though, is just the whole notion of access. Because I remember, like that week of March before the whole sports world shut down, there were articles being written about media not being allowed in locker rooms, and the whole conversation about locker room access and whether that was going to limit them to do their jobs. Do, do you sort of see? a world where the media can still operate and whether access can still be granted because I know over the years it's certainly it's certainly declined from you know speaking with you know several guests on this podcast from you know 10 20 years ago to now but I'm just curious your thoughts about whether access can still be be done and happen even in a post covid world uh, it's it's a great question I I, I don't really have the answer mm-hmm. um you know, as I kind of made on that earlier point, it, it is those kind of casual, uh, unpressured. I don't want to use the word intimate. I mean, it creates the wrong impression, <laughs> but, but, you know, just, um, just casual, mm-hmm. um, relaxed, uh, private. You know, it's those kind of moments that, you know, you earn over time, right? Like you earn, you know, and, and, you know, you never know when you're, it, you know, you're going to get lucky 
just by being around, right? And um, so that's that's I think what's what's going to be missed, and and um, you know the relationships with players take years to mm-hmm. develop sometimes, right? Like it really does, and and you know a lot of times a, a player will come into a team and he's 18, 19, 20 years old. He's really shy. You know, I always talk about DeMar DeRozan. I mm-hmm. mean, he, you know, he joined the Raptors as an 18 year old, maybe 19 year old. And I don't know if I heard him speak two sentences for his first year. And when he did speak a sentence, there wasn't much to it. <laughs> you know, he was a pretty shy, reserved guy. Um, and he blossomed as a player and he, but he blossomed as a, as a man. And uh, it was really rewarding to kind of see that happen and, and have my relationship, not, you know, a handful of other guys enjoyed it too, where, you know, it just got more and more uh, pure, like, mm. you know, so it's never the same, <laughs> but, but, you know, it, you, everyone's, he's comfortable, you're comfortable, there's more approachability and, um, you know, it just opens up doors and uh, how to create that if you're not, like I say, able to be around. Um, I, I'm not sure. I really don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, but I, I guess the flip side of it is, I think leagues, and I'll speak specifically about the NBA, like I think they recognize the value of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm hoping that when it's safe to do so, they'll try and rethink and reevaluate, but in some way or recreate uh, the best of what was there before. Another thing that's going to be happening, of course, before the regular season takes place is free agency, which has become a whole event onto itself with, with in terms of excitement, certainly the last few years. I'm just curious, Michael, your your thoughts on how free agency is going to take place this year, given a flat salary cap, according to the NBA. And then in regards to the Raptors, I know Fred Van Vliet talked about wanting to get paid on the J.J. Redick podcast, and he has every right to do so. The question is, I mean, are, are, are teams willing to go, go, you know, make that jump in terms of giving him what he thinks he deserves, given what he's done for the Toronto Raptors and in helping them win a championship? Yeah, I think free agency, first of all, it's not a great year to be a free agent. No. There's not a ton of money in the system. Uh, the cap, as you point out, is flat. So, you know, that little bit of extra grease that helps, um, you know, and I think, I think a lot of teams have kind of been organizing themselves for, 2021 free agency so there's still a lot of contracts on the books i mean that said things always get done and, and figured out there's always these except mid-level exceptions and stuff so um there will be movement um as it relates to fred um I, he will he you know he's gonna get a nice contract yeah and you know he's gonna get something a lot more than the nine million he was playing for and a lot longer than two years he was on it and it will be whatever he ends up at will be a great story because of everything he's gone through to get to this point in his career. Um, I think the real question is, is there a team or teams and you probably need two to, uh, you know, kind of really drive his price up in that range that would kind of raise eyebrows. I think if Fred VanVleet ends up signing with Toronto at four years, 80 million or 76 million or somewhere in there, I don't think anyone bat an eye and people go, that's a good deal for both team, both parties. And uh, let's, let's see what this guy can do with the prime of his career. Um, if a team, you know, there's a couple of teams that 
could do it if they wanted to. Detroit's one, Knicks are one, Atlanta maybe. Um, you know, really decides that he's the guy they want to sort of set their culture for them um, going forward and they're willing to pay a hundred million bucks for him, for him to do it. He's not coming back to Toronto. Mm. I don't think the Raptors will go that high. Um, I don't think Fred would turn that down. You know, they kind of, you know, he said, I want to, I want to cash out. I want to, I got my ring. Now I want to get my, my, uh, my bag, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that I know Fred and he's too smart to not understand the bigger picture. I mean, he's one of those brighter Mm -hmm. athletes I've ever really worked with. And, you know, if, if, if the difference is 600,000 a year over four years between Toronto and a different situation like he's he's smart enough to recognize that there's value in in toronto at, at a slightly lower price he's not going to nickel and dime anyone mm-hmm. he's too smart for that but he is not giving a discount mm-hmm. so uh you know he's not leaving 10 million on the table he's probably not leaving 5 million on the table uh, he's certainly not leaving 20 million on the table <laughs> and, and and nor should he i mean these opportunities come around sometimes once in a lifetime for an athlete it's fred's time and, uh, you know, he's a smart dude, too. If the situation isn't that good and you're playing good, you know, you can always get trades. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, Fred's, uh, Fred, Fred understands the business. Speaking of betting on yourself, I, I want to pivot towards talking about your career because, like Fred, I think, you know, y- you, you certainly bet on yourself when, when you think of, you know, you went to Mount Allison and then, you know, you, you had a certain career and then you said, you know what, I want to go down the journalism school route. Well, we'll dive deeper into the various parts of your career. But when you look back, I mean, I mean, how, how important does it feel extra satisfying knowing that you had to, you know, take down or, you know, go down and make a gamble on yourself to go down a different career path and then have to own it, have to work harder to, to get to where you are now? Yeah. Yeah, you know what, I mean, that's, that's uh, I haven't thought about it exactly in those terms, but I mean, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot to it. I mean, I was 27 when I left the job I had and, uh, you know, dug into my own pocket to go to journalism school and, and, um, you know, I always say, like, it wasn't like I was going to dentistry. <laughs> you know, what I mean? like, like, you know, like, it wasn't like, like generally, you think, you know, I mean, journalism is tough now. It was tough then. Like, it, it was never a career where um, you could just kind of stumble out of school or whatever program or whatever you're doing and kind of expect to have, you know, a really, you know, the career that I've had. Like, mm-hmm. it, 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 I, and I say this to people all the time. You know, I, my son wants to do this or, or, you know, can I meet with you? I want to do that. And I'm not happy to do it, right? But, but you know, when you just go by the numbers of people who want to do something like what I do, um, and let's face it, and do it and make a living at it, and a, a decent living, um, nobody calls me up and asks me, you know, my son wants to play in the NHL, right? <laughs> well, you got a better chance. Like yeah. that, that's the thing is there's by just by number of odds. I mean, the number of people who would love to do what I do versus the number of opportunities to actually do it. Um, I'm not sure that you're, 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 you have a better chance of making the NHL than doing what I'm doing. Not because I'm so special and gifted like an NHL player is. It's just, uh, the, the, it's just a tough industry. 
there's not a ton of, of opportunities and, and there are opportunities, but to actually have one where you can kind of raise your family and, and, and afford to, to, you know, own a car and stuff like that. I mean, um, so anyway, my point being is, is it did feel pretty scary at the time. And, but I, I, I was, and as a result, I was very, very determined. Mm -hmm. Like I, I was, uh, I was a little older than a lot of people in the class, and uh, I was one of those irritating, mature, mature students. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I just was like, look, I'm not going to screw this up. And uh, so I really went at it, and, uh, you know, and it did get some good breaks right out of the gate, uh, both while at school and, and, and coming out of school. And uh, I just tried to keep, you know, my pedal down, the pedal down the entire time. And I wouldn't say I had a strategy around any of it like i'd be in fact i know i didn't i just <laughs> didn't know enough um but you know my strategy was just never say no to anything and uh just never just literally never say no to anything and just grind and grind and grind and grind and and you know it's like that thing i lucky things seem to keep happening to me <laughs> you know and you know so either i'm incredibly lucky or you know when things come across my desk, I'm able to turn them into something useful. And, and that's probably a combination of that, of both. Speaking of, you know, never saying no and just grinding for everything, you have a fantastic story about getting published in the New York Times. I was wondering <laughs> if you can maybe provide the listeners that story because yeah. I think it's, it's, um, a gr it's a really good story about being determined and just being willing to just, you know, it shows also the different times that was, because I don't think that could yeah, be replicated. There's a, few different, there's a yeah, few different ways to interpret the story, absolutely. And, uh, you know, but I always say, you know, the, the most important thing I learned when I went to journalism school at Western, and, and while I'm on the podcast, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, my friend Aaron Paul, nice. who was a classmate of mine and passed away quite suddenly. Uh, just uh just yesterday mm -hmm. and uh so i don't know if anyone would be listening at new Aaron. she worked at cbc for years and years well aaron um, was actually i'll just quickly interrupt sorry but aaron was actually is i was actually my prophet centennial just right now wow. the, the program that i'm going wow. to so uh yeah wow. a, a real loss she, for she sure great she was great and she was just a ray of sunshine and uh was a good friend and it was a real shock anyway mm -hmm. so she was in my class and and um the point being is, is what I learned most out of that experience was the value of your idea, right? So, um, you know, journalism is wonderfully flat in that literally a guy who's got 30 years experience and a whole bunch of awards and attributes and accolades, you know, a guy who's, uh, you know, on his first day at Centennial, the guy first day at Centennial could have a better story idea, 100%. Mm -hmm. 100% doesn't mean you can execute it doesn't mean you can pull it off and, 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 and when it's all done it'll be any good but the, the notion that you have is equally as valid and important and useful as you know name your superstar mm -hmm. so um, so that was a, a, a big experience a big learning experience for me in that program and so what happened to get to the point of the story was um the nhl was in a lockout it was uh fall of 94 so they they hadn't started playing that that fall and, and um my girlfriend at the time had a friend i'm sorry my girlfriend at the time her brother was a very good friend with eric lindros mm. eric lindros is 
and Eric was at the time pretty much at the peak of his career. He was he was far, arguably the best player in hockey at that point, and he decided in the semester, you know, they didn't start playing again until January, to go to Western, take a course, live with his buddies, uh, just experience something he'd never had a chance to experience because of hockey. And and so I thought that would be a great story. And so we were assigned a story for our sports journalism class. And uh, I said I would do this and reached out to, um, got in touch with Eric through, through my girlfriend and her brother. And he was amazing. Like he was so cool, so nice, giving tons of time. Uh, I guess we were probably around the same age actually, but, but anyway, couldn't have gone better and ended up having what I thought was a pretty good story for class. And, you know, and I, earlier that semester, I had sold a piece to the Globe and Mail, um, which is, is equally weird a story. Um, and so I said, okay, well now I should try and sell this, I guess. And, and I talked to the one friend I had in the, in the industry and she told me, you know, like, well, you've been in the globe, aim higher. Mm. I was like, all right. And so I literally, we had pre cell phones. And so, uh, it was barely, we barely had email then. And so we had this row of, uh, phones, like little phone <laughs> booths almost that we could use to do interviews and things like that. So I go into this booth and I, I can't even know how I did Like how the hell did I, I, I literally don't know how I did it, but I got the phone number for the New York times and somehow got through their sports department. And um, some guy picks up the phone and he says, uh, Jay Schreiber, Time Sports. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, hi, my name's Michael Grange and I have an interview with, uh, with Eric Lindros. And uh, he's, you know, and, you know, the Philly was kind of a New York metro area type thing. Rangers were a big story. I guess, I guess they had just beat the Rangers in, in the Stanley Cup that mm. year or lost the Rangers anyway. Yeah, they lost to the Rangers, mm -hmm. I think. Anyway, I'm getting my dates are all confused. So anyway, he was that was relevant. It was a good story, a good idea, is my point. Even though Jay Schreiber, I had no idea who I was. And uh, he said, sure, you know, give it a shot. And so I, I, I faxed him. <laughs> I wrote the story. I faxed him a copy. And, um, you know, and I think the funny part of that story was he offered, they initially offered me, 200 bucks and i said well how about 300 and i think i sell it at 250 or something it's ridiculous right like who negotiates with the new york times the uh but they they took it they ran it back page with sunday sunday new york times it was like maybe the week before the lockout ended so great timing and i still have it framed today and uh you know so in terms of getting a job after that i I would guarantee almost I'm the only journalism student in the history of Canadian history that had a freelance clip sold to the Globe and Mail and New York Times. And so, uh, yeah, so it was, it was, it was good. It was fun. But, uh, I think that's the only time I've been in the New York Times. <laughs> well, been downhill since then. well, but it's a great, like, it's a great story. I mean, not just for like learning how to negotiate, which you, which you clearly did there, but like, I just think that, Sometimes, you know, you know, I'm, I'm interacting with journalism students all the time and, and young journalists and sometimes they feel like, oh, I'm not good enough to like, you know, be, you know, at that stage yet to get published in the New York Times or a bigger outlet. But I think you just made the great point that you could have a better idea than someone who's, you know, 30, 40 years experience in the industry. Now, maybe your execution of it or how you write it may not be as good, but it, but the idea is golden. And I think... 
Yeah. Just just yeah, risking it. Access, the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, all those things. And, uh, you know, those are, look, if you've got more experience, you know, you've got a better chance of maybe creating those kind of opportunities sometimes. And, and like I said, you, you should be a lot better at executing them. But, um, you know, it doesn't, you know, like journalism is a crazy business, man. It's it's uh, it's almost like music in a way, <laughs> right? Like, like, like your long-term established artists, like, you know, they're there probably because they probably got a little bit of ability and they're proving they're consistent. They have a following and, you know, there's a reason they've been on top for a long time, but that doesn't mean some dude you've never heard of can't make a better album than you too mm-hmm. at a given moment, right? Like, I mean, at all, right? We've seen it thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And it's a little bit like that in, in this business too, where, you know, somebody, maybe you, somebody you're in class with, you know, they, they might really have it and uh, they just need a chance or a break or some luck or, but the big thing is not, you got to believe in yourself, you know, and, and even if you feel stupid and scared, um, you know, people think believing in themselves is I got this, you know, no problem. No, fuck that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's believing in yourself enough to keep going, even though those voices that want you to stop that are telling you you're an idiot mm-hmm. and you can't do this. Uh, um, you know that, that you 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 believe in yourself enough not to listen and um you know and, and in fact people who are the who don't who believe in themselves so much they don't hear them they got no chance none you then went on to then work many years at the globe and mail and i had your uh, former colleague steve McAllister on the podcast a few months back and, and, yeah your former boss. boss and uh yeah. and and we talked about just the talent that was there in that sports department. When you look at yourself and Stephen Brunt and Jeff Blair, Gary Joyce, David Schultz, the list goes on. I mean, I'm missing many yeah. others, but the list goes on. Sean but Richard, Beth Smith, uh, yeah. Chris Christie, uh, Roy McGregor, um, <laughs> Al Mackey, uh, Dave Naylor. Yep. Um, yeah, it was it was loaded, man. It was it was it was loaded. So what was just it like to just be surrounded by that talent and did, did it make you better as a journalist just being surrounded by some of the best in the business yeah i really did and uh, a couple of things like one name i didn't mention there is, is rob mcleod and and um you know and, and i think at that stage of my career what was really cool is we actually went to the office mm. and so you know you were around you were listening to like literally you'd be in a little pod, right? And people's phones would be ringing and, and they'd be, you'd hear them interviewing people. Um, you'd, you'd kind of by osmosis pick up, you know, some good and bad habits. And, um, and I think, and, and I think that was always really good is, is you, you know, you, you put the phone down and you say, you bounce an idea off each other or, or what do you think of that? Or can you believe it? He just told me this. And, um, and so it was, it was kind of like a, a little bit of a hothouse effect and and um and the other thing that was amazing about the glo- about working at the globe was um even within this well within the sports department when it, when something was kind of a big story and you know you just had so many different people with so many different range of contacts you could kind of tap into or cooperate with or share and uh you know that was a really really fun thing to do to kind of collaborate like that and it made you better for sure um and uh you know and then the paper at large right like so i 
you know, I was there long enough and over a little bit of time would sort of get pulled into writing. I, for a while there, I was almost like the, the sports writer who would write features that would appear in the, the other, in the news section, the focus section. It was kind of like a, you know, it was always a big deal to do that. And so you'd get exposed to this whole other uh, layer of, of journalists who were, you know, absolutely the best in the country and, you know, edited by the best. And, and um, so it, you know, you maybe weren't aware of it at the time, but in retrospect, you're like, man, that really helped shape my career. And, um, you know, can't say that it made me any easier to edit and my typos <laughs> any less, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, regular, but it definitely uh, shaped, uh, you know, made me better and it gained you confidence. And, you know, and eventually you just get to this point where, you know, you just, you know, you believe, still believe in yourself, maybe even more so. And, and then the doubts kind of, kind of, get a little more quieted down and, and you just kind of hit your stride. And it almost so sort of feels, Mike, like, you know, a bygone era just because, you know, how newspapers aren't as prevalent anymore, right? And and how yeah. it, it, it just it's, sad. It's, it's um, you know, I, I, it is. And, uh, you know, there's something, uh, you know, there's a real craft to journalism and there was a real workmanlike, uh, efficiency to getting a newspaper out every day. Mm -hmm. You know, you had to get this, all these words, put them all in a space and get it out in time. So it could be on the street the next day, next morning. And so there was all these, uh, uh traditions built into that. And, you know, and even as technology advanced, like a lot of those traditions remained. And, um, you know, one thing having jumped over to sports that in more of a digital realm, um, one thing that hasn't really traveled and is, is that kind of two things I would say one is, you know, w with a hard paper, their real estate was really important, right? Like there was a finite amount of space on a page there's a finite number of pages in a paper. And so there was a real uh, discipline and of thought that went into, uh, you know, what we were going to fill the real estate with why what was valuable about, about it, how valuable was it, and was it more valuable than something else? So if it is, well, we'll move it from this page to that page, we'll move from that part of the page to this top part of the page, we'll treat it differently. And so um, it created all kinds of little disciplines, uh, both from the writers and the editors to plan and think, anticipate, um, set agendas, work towards those agendas, and I don't mean agendas like political agendas, but more <laughs> like, you know, like whatever a topic might be. Mm -hmm. And um, and then all of a sudden you go to an environment where it's digital. So does it matter if it's 900 words or 1400 words? Well, okay, it'll be 1100. You know what I mean? Like, like it, there's just, there's less rigor. And so if you can write 1300 words instead of 800 words, some things are good about that. Like you can of layering more information and stuff but sometimes it's bad right because mm -hmm. you, you just kind of get a little sloppy it, it's easier to write now sometimes it's faster to write longer and um you know and and you don't go through that rigor of is this really important and why is it important and and it, is it more important than this thing and that that goes right even to your layouts um online and, and there's no criticism of sports who i think do a great job mm -hmm. but but it's just a different uh, set of uh, traditions and uh, you know and, and obviously with the way the newspaper industry is, is gone print in general 
you just wonder if how much of those disciplines and traditions they're going to go with it because uh you know i think you know people who haven't had the, the luck of being on the inside of a really good newspaper um maybe don't fully appreciate how uh how valuable they all were you all those traditions i'm saying no they of course they want about a newspaper but but uh you know what it takes from a journalism point of view to, to create one um you know there's a, there's a lot that goes into it that that maybe you know i don't know if all those habits will follow you talk about the transition i mean from you going from the globe and mail print to then more digital web at, at sportsnet and, and s- several of, of your globe colleagues like jeff blair Stephen brun also made the, the transition to the sports that i'm just curious michael what how challenging that was i mean because now you i mean because it's the industry's evolved now where print guys are now they're on tv they're on the radio doing using a bunch of different platforms so i'm just curious how difficult that transition was for for you um it, it wasn't at first and then it became really difficult <laughs> <laughs> at first i was like okay all right <clears throat> pardon me because i'd been on radio and tv before i'm like whatever um and then um you know and then certainly on the tv side radio is always a little bit more free-flowing so it, it you know there's you know there's good hits and bad hits and there's little tricks of the trade but it wasn't um you know there's just more room for latitude i guess mm-hmm. is what i'm trying to say in radio whereas in tv as i became a more regular tv uh presence and I went from like the print guy who kind of would talk on TV about, cause I knew something about the subject to a guy who was expected to perform as a TV person. That, that was, uh, once I kind of became aware of that and that was sort of my responsibility, um, that was a little bit more difficult transition than I would have thought. And, and um, I remember, you know, for me, it was probably in, especially in 2016, I'd only been to Sportsnet for five years maybe. And, but always just kind of doing hits and, and um, you know, just kind of being a news guy sort of thing. And then all of a sudden, as the Raptors became more and more a story and, and I became kind of a, a regular part of the broadcast and I had regular segments on the broadcast and all of a sudden, you know, uh, the quality was needed to be better. It needed to be better TV. And I was kind of learning as I went. And... Uh, and I remember panicking, like having, mm. like, I don't know if they were actually anxiety attacks, but definitely having like, you know, an awareness suddenly of what I was doing right before I hadn't given it any thought. And that's never good. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, some stumbles and some, some, uh, you know, some moments that weren't that good, but, um, got a little bit of coaching and kind of, you know, kind of learned and relaxed and the funny thing about tv is that really you're just trying to be yourself yeah but can you be yourself in <laughs> two minutes yeah right? in front of all these people obviously, yeah obviously that's i'm not very good at that part and, uh, <laughs> no that's not true um and so you know and so one so you know like anything else it's like building a fence which is why I'm dressed like this. There's little little tricks of the trade and, and, uh, and little things you can do to to make things go a bit easier. And you need a lot of reps. And I would, 
I, once I made that transition that I needed to be better and then I feel like I did get better, um, that's been fairly smooth sailing. I mean, you know, I don't think I'm a judge, right? Like it's hard to say, I, I think, but I feel way more confident. I feel way more competent <laughs> on television than I used to. And that's good because I work for a company that is, I work for a TV company. Yeah. So positive. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, 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 and it's interesting because like, I'm sure when you're at the Globe, I mean, you know, you're covering, you know, the Raptors or a Toronto sports team and you're just, you know, you're there, you go to the pregame press conference, post game, you then write your story and then that's it. But now at Sportsnet, I mean, if you're, if Sportsnet's broadcasting the Raptors, like you're doing the pregame hit, you're doing the halftime, you're doing maybe postgame and then you got to then write a story. So it must be more responsibilities now, but like in, in many ways, I know as a young person, like, sort of fun like that you get you get to do yeah. all, all, all these sorts of things i mean obviously it's yeah, busy it's in the fun. moment it's definitely not boring um but uh you know it's uh it's kind of takes <clears throat> what can already be a pretty like it's not rocket science you know but but writing on deadline is a bit of a a, a, a skill mm -hmm. and um and some people got it some people don't and some people like me that's figure it out but um sometimes often just barely but um you know you inject having to do live tv in and around that and it's it's pretty hard <laughs> like there's you know you've got games that end on the buzzer and you know it, 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 there's playoff games and and uh you know the digital side wants their copy right away you've got to be up live right away uh you've got to somehow do both and then keep then do it again and and it's it's a load um again i mean i'm not saying i'm not complaining and i'm not suggesting it's important and i'm not suggesting it's uh as difficult as say you know <laughs> being a you know there's a lot of jobs that are more difficult but but it is uh it is a pretty serious adrenaline rush and um there's a lot of it's a, it's a lot of room to embarrass yourself <laughs> and uh, so far I think. And uh, yeah, no, 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 for sure. Especially in the social media age, Michael, where uh, you know everyone's picking on you know every itty bitty thing these days. But uh, you know, you know, you speak of dead. <laughs> no, um, you know, you speak of deadlines and whatnot, and, and it's crazy to think it's been it's been over a year since the Raptors won their historic first championship, and. I had Dave Festchuk and Doug Smith on the podcast, and, and they talked about how when they were writing during the championship run, that they, that they were so busy on their work that they didn't really feel the impact of it until months after, I mean, what that moment meant. You know, for you, covering that, that experience, I know as a journalist, you know, you, you root for the stories, not the team, but, you know... A year to reflect. I mean, what was that run like for you? You know, in all the crazy. Yeah, I mean, I would I would share a little bit with Dave and, and Doug said. I mean, um, I did have a moment after they uh, they qualified for the finals. They won Game Six against the Bucks, and there was just a little bit of a pause there. And I found that very very emotional mm -hmm. um, personally. Like basketball had been. Uh, I never said to be you know basketball journalist but it, it really was you know if i look back it's it's absolutely the kind of lubricant that sort of greased my whole life like i mean i can you know i should probably write about it one day but it it, it, 
you know, right from about age 11 or 12 years old. And um, a lot of my, so many of my friends, so many of my experiences, my outlooks uh, were shaped by the game and, and, and being close to the game here in Toronto. And uh, it meant, and not just in Toronto, but, you know, when I was out east as well. Like, it just meant um, something more to me. Um, and so to, to see the Raptors win and, and go to the finals and have a bit of a pause to kind of reflect on that, I, I you know, I really found myself emotional. Mm-hmm. I just was, like, overwhelmed at times thinking about it, um, that, that I was having a small role in it and being able to cover it. But when they won, uh, I was spent. <laughs> I was so dead, so dead. And and it was just such a demanding uh, two and a half months, mm-hmm. you know, right from, you know, some, you know, from whenever the season's about to end and you're doing all your, your playoff preview and, and just the intensity of that whole run um, and the travel, you know, and I remember going back to the hotel after the game and they, you know, there's a little bit of a reception that the NBA puts on and, you know, you're still sits, sits, we're all sitting there like munching, having a beer, writing our stories. Mm-hmm. It's like three in the morning, <laughs> trying to book flights. And uh, you just didn't really, I never really got a chance to enjoy it. I think the parade was pretty overwhelming. Mm. Um, but I guess, honestly, my biggest pleasure has been the reaction of other people around mm-hmm. it and to it and people wanting to ask me about it and all of that. But, but, uh, but for me, it was, I don't know why, but it was that moment after they won against Milwaukee, I knew they were going to the finals. That's when it really hit me kind of at a cellular level. And then, um, but I, when they finally did win, I, I was just a shell man. I was, <laughs> I had nothing left. And, uh, it took me a long time to recover. Did you get sprayed by champagne at all, Michael? I don't think I did because <laughs> I was following my story and I had to go out on the floor and do hits. And so by the time I made it to the locker room, most of that is I definitely got some residue. Okay. And I will say this 100%. I, my biggest regret, like I can't even tell you how much I'm, how mad I am about this, is uh, you and I, I and I, it wasn't because of lack of experience because it was the same thing when I was uh, you know the I covered a couple of, I've covered lots of you know NBA finals but I remember when Cleveland won in in Oracle Arena yep. in Game Seven that insane game I remember going into the, the Cavaliers locker room and like the the champagne bottles are like litter like you cannot, <laughs> yeah. like they're almost like too deep like you you like you like you can't, you're walking and you're like pushing them out of your feet. It's like walking through leaves, except they're champagne bottles, <laughs> and um, they're everywhere. And uh, I don't know why I didn't grab one of those because I could have. It wouldn't <laughs> been a problem. And then similarly, when it was the same scene in the Raptors locker room, when I finally got in there, and, and I didn't touch a thing. And and uh, one of our producers, producers at Sportsnet, Leah. She uh, she walked. Her bag was clinking on her way out. I, was like, that? I grabbed a couple of the champagne bottles. I go, oh, ah, <laughs> you know, how cool would that have been, right? Yeah. 
and uh, what a dum dum. That's all <laughs> I can say. Just that is by far, by far my one of it's got to be one of my top five professional regrets. Well, hey, Michael. I mean, we, we, you know, when the Raptors win again in a few years, uh, maybe, maybe That's you right. could, maybe oh, no. be, you'll you'll know this time. You'll you'll know, but. You, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier just about the intensity, just and, and the demand of that playoff run. Did you feel like your the words that you were putting out meant more during that? Just given you know this unique place in history with, with in Toronto and Canadian sports. I mean, I, I was I tried. You know yeah. what I mean, like I like it's you know, and I definitely the feedback was was amazing. I you know. People really responded. I think they would have responded to anything anyone wrote. Like people are so excited. Yeah. So I can't really suggest it was my magic words, but but um, you know I didn't write like I was writing with an eye towards um, what this expressed about a city and a country, um, as opposed to you know what it said about you know why the Raptors won. You know what I mean? I I thought that I thought that. I've always thought, you know, like one of the things about basketball is it really is, it really does is tell a story about, mm-hmm. about um, Canada that's a little bit different and, 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 uh, and the story we've, we've heard all along, right, as it relates to hockey and, and you know, it's kind of like the urbanization and the, the uh, uh, it's like the diversity of the country. It's like the new Canada in mm-hmm. a way, and I think basketball really captures it and expresses that um in a way not that hockey can't or doesn't but but hockey's always been about you know our traditions and and and, uh i always say hockey's you know kind of what canada takes to the potluck right this is this is our little contribution you know this is what makes us special and unique try it and and basketball is about us going you know what like like we can we you know we can be global we can compete and meet uh, you know, in this, this, this big, big wide world, we're part of it. We aren't, we don't need to be different. It's great that we have things that are different, but we can meet the world on our terms too. And, uh, you know, and, and so I always, I kind of believe that pretty strongly. That's, I think the significance of the sport in Canada. And so as you know, I think a lot of those forces were coming together at one time and 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 that's why i think the one of the big reasons that playoff run captured the imagination of so many people why ratings were so high why the parade was so insane is it just was sort of like a like a way for this whole population to that was you know wasn't exclusive like you know you could be like a season holding the Leafs fan from 1955 and still be a raptors fan and get excited but i think it was a way for um, say new Canadians or people who, you know, sometimes, you know, didn't connect as easily with some of our sports traditions to really go, wow, okay, I can be myself. I can breathe. I can, you know, uh, feel important and feel like I'm, I'm part of something big here in Canada. And, and, and I think those things were all part of that whole story. I want to end off, and I usually do this with all my guests. We're just talking about the future, and and for especially younger journalists getting into the industry. And I'm just curious, Michael. I mean, given your career and your experiences, I know the industry's changed a lot, and and there, there there's such you know so few jobs you know available in the industry. But 
what advice would you give to, to younger journalists right now p- pursuing sports media and, and this, this line of work? Yeah, I, I wish I had uh, better advice. Like I wish I had uh, like a, like uh, some advice that worked. I think, uh, you know, I think a couple of things are always true, right? Like it's never been a business for people who, you know, want to be kind of casual about it, right? And sort of be home at five o'clock on Friday and and we'll talk again on Monday. Like it's just not the way it works. It's going to reward the hardest working people, the most committed people, the most passionate people. Um, That's definitely one trait that will never go out of style. I would say, I would in some ways be encouraged that, it, you know, as much as there's not like a, like an obvious bunch of a stepping stone approach anymore, where you can start here and then go there and, and eventually end up here. Um, you know, I think there's reason to be optimistic and, and encouraged by the fact that it's so flat, right? And like, you're a perfect example, right? Like, I mean, um you know we've seen examples of people who just start doing it Mm -hmm. and they get better at it they get better at it they get better at it and they build a little reputation they build a following people trust them people hear word you know word of mouth passes and uh you know they turn it into something um you know and i think if you're not doing that in some shape or form then you probably should be doing something else right that's very clearly the way if i was in a position to hire anybody i mean you know, that's the first thing I'd look for. Like, where, which, what have you produced, and 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 what, how can I hear it? How can I read it? Um, and is it good? So you, you know, I think that's giant. You have to do that. And I would also maybe what some of the other stuff we talked about is is just just really really believe that your experience and experiences matter, and how you can shape an idea, frame an idea, um, identify be inspired by something that's look man that 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 is the goal that is that is the currency of the industry and if you have it it's just as good and as important as anything i have and um you know and 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 that that's that may be the one thing i would i would leave anyone with is don't underestimate that don't underestimate it and uh you put that ability to kind of come up with some ideas and see stories and, 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 and anticipate tr- some stories and trends with that, that will, and you're going to give yourself a shot, you know, mm. and, uh, and that's really um, the best anyone can do right now. Michael Green, she is a multi-platform sports journalist for Rogers Sportsnet covering the Toronto Raptors and the NBA. Michael, a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. Thanks, Lucas. Great to have, great to talk, to talk with you. Great job.